Good morning. We are in the second week of the series that we're calling This Sacred Life. We're looking at eight statements that hopefully for us help to tease out a new way to see the world, a new lens by which to view the world, a lens that we are believing Jesus used to view the world. Each of these uh, statements that we're going to look at over the course of eight weeks, these lenses, frames, paradigms, ways of looking at the world, etc., enable Jesus to live all of life as sacred space, as holy ground. So we're doing this over the, the next eight weeks. We're trying these on for ourselves to see if they don't reshape the world, recolor the world for us. And we're using a book called Having the Mind of Christ. I've got it here. Uh, I know many of you got a copy last week. We had several downstairs for $12 each. I think we have two more copies left. If you want one of them, claim it today. You can give on the realm and grab a copy. You can put money in the box in the back and take one. Or you can get it on Amazon or Hoopla or wherever you prefer to get uh, books. But that's where we're getting these eight paradigms from. It's a book that's written by a couple friends of mine, uh, Ben Sternkey and Matt Tebby. We're also doing some learning communities where we're exploring these, these uh, eight statements together. We're diving a little bit deeper. So we're doing every week on Zoom. On Tuesdays, we had our, la- our first one last week. It was a great time together. And we're also doing every other Friday. And the first of those every others is this Friday. So this coming week, uh, we're going to be in person at 6.30 at our house. So we'll post a, an event on the realm so that you can catch that. So come have dinner with us, and uh, we'll be talking about the first two statements. The first of those first two statements, if you remember, we talked about it last week, is that, that our lives, the goal of our lives, the grounding of our life, is all about becoming one with God and with, and with each other. This is the telos, or the end goal of our lives, that Jesus has restored our communion with God through the incarnation, and we are learning how to live that out over the course of our entire lives. That's where everything's headed. This week, we're going to look at the second statement, which is that this God who has restored communion is with us. He's with us. We're not just theoretically connected to God. He is actually with us and is always working for our good. Paul tells the Ephesian uh, church in chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. It'll be on the screen here. He prays a prayer, a prayer for them as he's beginning his letter to them. And he says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know what is true of them in Christ. He says, I pray that their eyes would be open, that they would know the reality in which they now live, the implications of what it means to be in Christ. This is the good news that we proclaim today, that though we are often blind to it, 
God our Father is always present with us and is working for our good in every circumstance of our lives. Um, in the book, uh, Ben, one of the authors, shares uh, this great story about uh, being on ice. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk out onto a frozen lake before. If you've never done it, it can be uh, something that's full of fear and trepidation, and it, and it was for him. So he, he grew up in uh, Minnesota, and um, uh, it was very popular to ice fish in Minnesota. So you, I don't know if you've ever seen ice fishing or gone ice fishing. Basically, you go and you freeze your butt off in this little shack, and you dig a hole or cut a hole through the ice, and you sit there with a stick and a line hoping to catch fish while you freeze and probably drink a whole lot. Um, it's, I, it's apparently great fun. I don't, I've never done it before. But so, so Ben shares this story where uh, one day he decided he was going to walk out onto the ice, and so he went to the boat ramp, and he started to put one foot out onto the ice to test it and step back, another foot out onto the ice. And he's slowly sort of creeping out onto the ice, full of fear that at any moment he's going to break through the ice and fall in. And um, so he didn't want to go too far because he didn't want to get too wet and too deep. And so as he's crawling and sort of making his way out onto the ice, he hears this sound behind him. It's the sound of this massive diesel pickup truck roaring down to the boat ramp. And just as he steps aside to look at what's coming, this truck with an ice house goes rolling out onto the ice and speeding away at 30 miles an hour towards the center of the lake. So he, he says, the ice obviously was thick enough for me. I just didn't know it. Right. Um, so he says this in the book. He says, I thought I was in danger, but I really wasn't. It was thick enough to hold a pickup truck. The man in the truck drove out with confidence. The truck didn't experience a different situation, but the experience was very different because I didn't know how thick the ice was, but the driver did. I would have been more confident, and he says, and probably had more fun, had I known that the ice was plenty safe for me. Um, ben uses this illustration to say that something similar is happening in Paul's prayer to the Ephesians, that Paul is not praying that a new situation was, would happen for these believers. He's praying that their eyes would be open to the situation that they're already in. Praying that they would be able to perceive the depths of the reality that they currently have. Not that that reality would change, but that they would wake up to what's already true. That what God had already done for them in Christ and what God was making available to them in Christ was safe, was thick enough to have confidence in. Paul says that God has blessed them with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just like Ben couldn't see how thick the ice was, we too are often blind to our true situation. We have no idea how safe we actually are. We have no idea how present God is to us and how he's always been working for us and with us. And the reason I think that we've been um, blind to much of this is, again, because we've been indoctrinated. Did you know that you've been indoctr indoctrinated? Did you realize that? You live in a world that's constantly sending you messages about reality. 
And all of us live in that world. It's the water that we swim in. It's the air that we breathe. So we've been, in a sense, brainwashed or seduced by a worldview that, uh, that bifurcates the world into sacred and secular. I mentioned this last week. It's called secularism which is different from atheism, which says there is no God, but secularism says that, that, yes, God exists, but he exists somewhere else, doing who knows what. But he's busy, off somewhere, like Superman saving somebody else because he can't save us, right? He's not really involved in the everyday, ordinary stuff of our lives. That realm is mostly up to us. We're on our own. And so we have to handle it. We have to live it out. And, and often the way that we've Christianized secularism is by saying we have to do it according to God's principles, right? We have, we're in charge of this realm. It's really on, on our own. It's up to us. So we have to do it according to God's laws. But God is up there in heaven somewhere far away. Where are you blind? to God's work in your life, his presence? Where do you need to see how God is present with you and working for your good? Maybe you've never imagined that God could care that much about your ordinary life. The things that you like to do, your schedule, your priorities, your money, your relationships. Maybe you never imagined that he's actually interested in you. Maybe you've picked up this cue because the people in your life don't seem very interested in you and you think that God works a lot like the people that you know. And that's okay. We come by these things honestly. Maybe you've suffered in some way. Maybe you're suffering. Maybe you've prayed for God to do something, to take it away. And he hasn't. And nothing's changed. And you wonder, how could God be present if this Wouldn't things look different if he was? Maybe there's pain or resentment there because he's not doing what you would expect. Friends, hear the good news today. That though we are often blind to it, though it often conflicts with our perception of reality and our expectations of what it looks like when God does show up, God our Father is always present and at work in every circumstance of our lives. Will you open yourself to this reality today. Um, there are several people in Scripture for whom reality, the reality of God's presence didn't match their expectations. I mean, you could probably name several of them. Um, one of the ones that um, often gets named is uh, Jacob. You know the story of Jacob? One of the parts of his story in Genesis is um, that he is running for his life, from his life, because he's just cheated his brother out of his inheritance with his mom's help. So uh, Jacob is a deceiver by nature, and he lives as part of a dysfunctional family. This is not like our typical starting point when we think about how God is about to show up in the world, right? Um, Maybe your story sounds a lot like Jacob's. But he, so he's running from his life. He's trying to get away from the people that he perceives are a threat to him. And he stops at a certain place and he has a dream that reveals what's really going on in this seemingly ordinary place. That God is with him. Promising to watch over him. Promising to fulfill all of his promises to him. 
And, and Jacob says this in Genesis 28, verse 16 and 17. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the true. This is the gate of heaven. In other words, God was with me, and I didn't see it. I didn't realize it, but now my eyes are open. And he renames the place Bethel, meaning house of God. Um, anytime there's a renaming ceremony in the Old Testament, that's, that's language to say it's revealing the true nature about something. But it's not that God showed up there. It's not that Bethel was a special place where God was there and he was not other places. But it's that Jacob woke up. Ironically, he woke up in a dream. <laughs> but he woke up to God's presence. The blessing that Jacob had been looking for and looking for and looking for and swindling others out of in order to get, it found him when he did nothing but take a nap. It was there, present, available to him. This um, God with us reality is most clearly modeled for us by Jesus. I mean, if that's the Sunday school answer, right? If, you, if you're going to say who uh, lived their life out this way most of all, obviously the answer, we're in a church, right? Like, if this were a kid's class, you would obviously raise your hand, ooh, 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 it's Jesus. It has to be, right? Um, but in Jesus, we see someone who responds to the, the availability of God. There's one particular scene where Jesus uh, responds to the Pharisees who are persecuting him because he healed a disabled man on the Sabbath. Ooh. He broke the rules in defiance of the Pharisees' authority. And he's, he says this. This is his defense for why he did it. John, 17, or John 5, verse 17, he says, My father is always at work. My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can, he can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all He does. Jesus tells them, I only see what I see my Father doing. And my Father's always working, even if you don't think He is. Even if you have rules to box in when He can and cannot work, my Father is working, and because He's working and I see it, I respond to it as well. And I'm going to listen to him and not to you, he says to the Pharisees. This reveals this reality that Jesus is living in, living out all the days of his life, every single moment. Jesus doesn't have um, heavenly marching orders downloaded to him at birth. And he's sort of carrying them out every single moment of his life. Sometimes that's how we think of Jesus. He's like a soldier for God who's been given all of his instructions up front, and he's just robotically doing them. Jesus isn't a robot. He doesn't say, I'm working for God. 
because he's not working for his father. He's working with his father. He's not a soldier. He's a son. He's a son who needs his father. Jesus needed his father and demonstrated that need moment by moment by moment. Jesus was nothing without his father. And so whenever Jesus looks at his father, he sees the hidden reality that that his father's at work moment by moment. And so he joins his father. He cooperates with his father by working too. He sees it and he participates in it. And friends, if you think that this kind of reciprocal life is exclusive to Jesus, let me say this in the stark terms I can. You may not be a Christian yet. To be a Christian means to be included, involved, swept up in this same sort of life. We too are invited into the same kind of relationship with God. This special connection of seeing and responding that Jesus showed us was how life was supposed to work for not just him, but for all humanity all along. And so he says, if you believe in me, you'll do the same things that I've done. In other words, you'll you'll see the Father and his presence. You'll see his work and you'll respond to his work, just like I do. It's a lifelong process, but this is what it means to be my follower. See, next week we're going to talk about how Jesus shows us what God is like. So stay tuned for that. But friends, Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the Son of Man, which means he's the human one. He shows us what it's like to be human like him. That's what the Son of Man means. It's humanity as humanity was always intended to be. There's no coincidence that this is Jesus' favorite term to use for himself. So the invitation is available. It's on offer for you this morning. A life of learning how to pay attention to God, our Father, who is always present and who's always at work. Learning how to offer yourself, your life, that He extends to you. Because friends, even though we are often blind to it, the good news is that God is present and at work for our good in every circumstance of our lives. I said this already, but our problem is that we are blind to it. We're like Jacob. It's not that we need circumstances to change. Our problem is that we need to wake up to what's true about us, for us, in us right now. And this is the whole reason that I uh, began with Paul's prayer and, and the reason that he prays for the Ephesian church. See, they were blind to it just as we're often blind to it. And the reasons that they were blind to is because they were indoctrinated just like we're indoctrinated by the world that we live in. So if, if, if we're um, often indoctrinated by secularism, they were indoctrinated by paganism. Paganism basically was a worldview that said that the gods are busy. And if you want to get their attention, you need to do a lot to get their attention. You need to devote yourself and worship and give sacrifices and make idols and 
go to festivals and to feasts and give money and do all these things. Jump how high, right? Because if you don't do these things, they're going to go to the next guy who's more devoted than you are. It's essentially paganism. Now Paul's saying this is not the God that we see in Jesus. Because the God that we see in Jesus is available to us. And so what he says is, I'm praying that you would know this God, not those gods, this God who has called you and who's here with you and who's working on your behalf. I pray that you'd know that the ice is thick enough to hold you. And you don't need to cut yourself or go through these enormous lengths in order to to find out if it's true. You're safe with him. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Did you know that your heart has eyes? I didn't know that. Um, apparently it does. Um, but apparently the, the, the center of our lives, kind of the, the organizing sense of who we are, has a way to perceive things that our physical eyes can't see. And so Paul says, I, I pray that, that this perception would be so lit within you of the truth of God's ever-present love that they would know the hope to which they, that, that they've been called, that, that death has been defeated and won't have the last word, that everything sad is going to come untrue, that they'll know the riches of their inheritance with all God's people, that they'll know that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is available in them and to them. And that this power that God gives, it's not uh, seeking to control or dominate us. It's not seeking to turn us into robots or soldiers, but sons who can see what the Father is doing and reciprocate that activity. That God is a God who seeks to bless and empower and liberate in His love. And that all this is yours. You don't have to call down God's attention because in Christ you have it. And when he rose, he rose to fill all things with himself. And we are connected to him now because we are his body. And so you can believe it. If you can believe it. That Christ is here. He is with us and among us. And his power and presence are available to us right this very second. Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8 says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, even in the grave, you're there too. You can't escape from God's love. It's available to you everywhere you go. One of my favorite quotes is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Barrett Browning who says, uh, earth is crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The good news that we proclaim today is that though we are often blind to it, though we don't take off our shoes most days, God our Father is always present with us and working for our good in every circumstance. Um, this is why when we... Um, after we give a message, we give some time for silence and reflection to see what God wants to say and how he wants to move in our lives. 
Um, and notice when we do that response time, we don't say, let's be quiet so that God will come. At least I don't ever say that. I don't think I've ever said that. If I have, James will correct me. And then I'll issue an apology next week, okay? Um, but we say something along the lines of, let's be quiet together so that we can hear what God already wants to say to us. Let's be present to the God who's already, already present with us. And then we allow our si- ourselves time to rest in that God's presence, to acknowledge that God is here, that we don't need to do anything to achieve it or earn it. So friends, we, we don't ask God to show up. We don't make God show up by our singing or by our, um, our incredible lighting or our fog machines or whatever else churches use to try to whip up a sense that God is present and among us. We don't actually need to do any of those things. We just need to wake up to what's already true. We give space to what was true before we got here and what will be true after we leave. So um, we respond to this idea not by uh, checking a box on a statement of belief saying, yes, I agree that God is present and at work. That's oftentimes the way that we think about belief is that everybody agrees and we check the box. No, we're not asking for intellectual agreement on a statement of faith. Because this isn't a reality that we assent to, it's a reality that we consent to. We give ourselves over to that reality. That's how we say yes, not just with our minds, but with our bodies. And so we we close our eyes and we bow our heads and we extend our arms and we come forward to tables These are the bodily ways that we say, yes, God is here, and I want to open myself to that reality. And the table is one of those things. We come and we take the bread and we take the juice. These are ordinary things, right? Um, I didn't bless them in the back with holy, like, like, I didn't make them sacred, right? There wasn't some secret ritual that you all weren't purview to that turned bread and wine into something that they aren't. They're still bread and juice. Uh, nominal quality at best, okay? So it's, it's not that we do stuff to turn ordinary things into sacred things. It's, it's that when we gather, we're remembering that, that God isn't just found here, but it's a reminder that Jesus is found everywhere, and so we encounter him here through ordinary things, like bread and juice, which is a reminder to us again and again every single Sunday that, that not just these tables, but every table and every space is the dwelling place of God. The places you go here, go from here this afternoon, are Bethel. Your job tomorrow morning is Bethel. It is the house of God because you are there and you are the body of Christ. And so my, my neighbor's house is sacred space. It's Bethel. My kids are sacred. My friendships are sacred. Everywhere and everyone is the meeting place to encounter God. So the question that we ask is not, do you intellectually believe? 
but rather, do you receive this reality? Because receiving is believing. Receiving is believing. The Christian faith is simply that God is with us and nothing is ever going to change that. The Christian life is lived moment by moment in union with God as he fills his creation. Every concrete moment of our life, yes, even the suffering ones, are the house of God, the place where communion takes place. So how do we respond then? We respond by praying. And so let us pray with our eyes um, open to see the reality of God among us. Let's stop maybe discarding the everyday ordinary moments of our life as merely secular. Let's stop seeing our suffering as proof of God's absence and instead learn to recognize God's love in our daily joys and tribulations, in our mealtimes and our bedtimes in our routines, in our activities, but also in our moments of fear and frustration and shame, in our confrontations and arguments and pain and loneliness and, and, and despair. It's not that God said, let these things be, but in the midst of these things that are, he says, I will be there and I will be at work no matter what. Friends, these these moments are our lives. They are the only place God can meet us because God meets us in reality. So for you, where do you struggle to believe this? That God is always present and at work. Maybe it's when things aren't going as you expected them to. Because you expected that if God were to show up, he would be a God of control who would control every minutia of your life and make it so. Control isn't the same thing as presence. Maybe you struggle to believe that God's present when you're struggling and when you're suffering. And if that's you, then you're in great company because the scriptures are full of people that have hard times reconciling those two realities together. You're in great company. For me, um, the times when I struggle to believe that God is present and at work is usually when the pressure is on me, when I'm full of stress. Um, and this has been happening somewhat recently. Um, tomorrow, my dad is moving up here permanently uh, to move into an apartment and an assisted living facility, and there is just a ton of work to do to make that happen and go smoothly. And my default, when the pressure's on, when um, the stress hits, is to um, implicitly say that it's all up to me in this moment. And so I either try to power through the feeling of stress, or I procrastinate and I turn away from it, and I drown myself in something else to try to get temporary relief from it. But I'm realizing that this, this is actually living a secular life. <laughs> to power through and procrastinate because you believe it's all up to you is a secular existence. It's saying to God, it's all up to me. So instead, what I'm waking up to is learning to meet God in the midst of the anxiety and to pray. 
And again, if I'm, if I'm praying like Paul is suggesting that we pray, then that prayer is not, God, take this away from me. That prayer is um, bringing my reality to God and saying, this is what I'm experiencing right now. What do I not see? I feel anxious today. I have this and this going on. And I want to believe that you're present with me, so help me in my unbelief. Where is this anxiety coming from? What do I need to let go of? What do I need to see that only you see right now? See, what I'm learning is that praying is not about pleasing God. It's not about duty. It's not about asking God necessarily to change every circumstance and situation. It's about waking up to the God who's already present in love with me. Where... Do you need this sense today? Um, we're going to pray in a moment and say, in a sense, God, I struggle to believe that you're present and at work in my blank, and I invite you to name that before God. Um, but this is also what we're doing uh, when we meet together throughout the week, either online or in person through this series. Um, we're learning how to name these things with God and with each other how to grow in them and learn how to put on these new glasses that Jesus wore all the time so that we can wear them too.